0: first reading is taken from Psalm 13, which you can find on page 548 in the Bible, Church Bible. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts, and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fail, fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me.
1: Our second reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 7, on page 311. 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 8 to 16. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth, and I'll provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I remove from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the word of the Lord.
2: A prayer as we stand. My hope I cannot measure. Heavenly Father, please teach us how to cope with hope in the midst of a present day, which can be disappointing. Teach us what it looks like to walk with Jesus Christ as our Savior now, when sometimes it doesn't feel easy. And sometimes we don't feel like singing in the midst of our sorrow. For your namesake. Amen. Please do be seated. And if you would, turn back to that psalm which Grace read to us, Psalm 13. It's on page 500. And 48. It's difficult when our expectations exceed our present day experience. It's difficult when something has been promised to us which doesn't match our present day experience. And, of course, that is a problem for the world out there. My generation and the subsequent generations seem to have increasingly high expectations for life, and they are expectations which just cannot be met in our experience. It breeds discontentment, sometimes cynicism. But this psalm teaches us that it is also an issue for those of us in the church, for God's own people. When our expectations outstrip our current experience, how do we respond? Because if we are a Christian, I take it that our expectations for the here and now are moulded supremely by God's very great promises to us. The problem comes when God's promises look like they have failed in our present day experience. The problem comes when there is a disconnect between the promise that I read in my quiet time in the Bible and my present day experience as I leave the house on a Monday morning. That is a difficult disconnect to deal with. And Psalm 13 is a song which models how to deal with that disconnect so that it doesn't boil over to discontentment or even cynicism, but so that verse 6 it boils over to praise. It teaches us how we can sing in the midst of sorrow. The first two headings, if you're taking notes on the back of the notice sheet, you'll see the headings there. The first two are foundational for the third, and the third is where all of our application will be. The first heading is this, when God's promises look like they fail from verses 1 to 4. As ever, the sensible place to start is at the beginning And when I say the beginning, I mean the beginning. For the director of music, Tom Bell, Timo, a psalm of David. This is a psalm of King David, the king of God's people throughout the Old Testament. And first and foremost, it is a song not about us, although it will come to us eventually. It is about him. It is his song I counted up the number of words in our English translation of this psalm. There are 105 words in this psalm. It's quite short. Of those 105 words, 18 of them are first-person pronouns. That is, I, me, or my. 18 of them speak about things which have happened to David or which he has done. It is an intensely personal psalm. He penned it. And therefore, we would do well, as it were, to hear him sing it. I'm not going to sing it. But to hear him sing it before we learn to sing this psalm, as it were. And as we listen to him sing, there's a repeated refrain which Grace brought out so well when she read it How long? Twice in verse one, twice in verse two. How long? how long how long how long the very repetition of it makes us feel the truth of which it speaks an experience which is going on far too long if you were to ask david this is something which he wants to finish he wants to reach for the fast forward button on the remote control of his life or at least see a task bar to see how long this is going to last for how long He describes his distress in literally three dimensions. Verse 1, his distress in relation to God. Beginning of verse 2, in relation to himself. End of verse 2, in relation to his enemies. And all of these dimensions are of a piece. They all speak of the same experience of his distress. Let's unpack them. Verse 1, he feels forgotten by God. He feels all alone. Uh, This is Job. Let me quote a bit of Job to us. I cry to you for help, says Job, and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. He says somewhere else, oh, that I were as in months of old when the friendship of God was upon my tent Job's experience is, is mirrored by David's years later. He feels abandoned by the God who was once right at his right hand. Uh, God's hidden his face from him. Um, I don't know whether you use Apple FaceTime, um, whether or not you use that. We all use our faces, and when we befriend somebody, we turn our face to them. It's a sign often of our blessing and of our goodwill towards them, and, and David says here God's goodwill and his blessing has been turned away from him. We may know Aaron's blessing, which makes this point. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Only here David feels the absence of God's blessing and his keeping and his graciousness and his peace. How long will you hide your face from me, And it affects him deeply on the inside, beginning of verse 2. It's almost like he's speaking to the counselor. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? I, in a sense, it's very easy when our problems are external to us because we can just change our circumstances and be rid of the problems. We can move house away from the neighbors from hell, or we can go on holiday to escape the boss. As we say, we can just get away from it all. But when our problems are internal to us, that is quite another problem, because of all the things and people I can escape, I cannot escape myself. Here is David's own thoughts and they have become like an Olympic wrestler to him which accost him whenever he has time to think. Whenever he switches off, he has a battle on his hands. His mind is a war zone. He is conflicted, as we say. He has to fight dark and difficult thoughts because he fears that his God... Has abandoned him. And he fears that God has abandoned him because, end of verse 2, his enemies are triumphing over him. How long will my enemy triumph over me? It's life and death. They want him to die and therefore to overcome him. Verse 4. This is David's sorrowful song. Uh, He's singing at a time when God's promises looked like they'd failed to him and and we don't know exactly when he penned this psalm we have to guess with many of the psalms it could have been at the time when his son Absalom was trying to take his throne from him by force that would fit and David looks at the promises made to him which David read to us in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and he thinks, what's happened to these very great promises? It looks like they've failed, and who could blame him? God had promised that he would be with him, whereas now God's face looked like it was hidden from him. God had promised rest from and defeat of all of his enemies, and yet here they were triumphing over him. God had promised his kingdom and throne being established forever whereas now the only forever thing looked like God's forgetting of him. So he's left with this disconnect between God's promises and his present day experience. It's like God had talked a good game like God had been an estate agent but he hadn't come good on it. And he wasn't the only one of God's kings to face that problem. There was one king who was promised victory and protection and God's personal guidance and presence and even glory. And yet it looked like to him that God's promises had failed. Left alone in the wilderness to be tempted by his, by the enemy, who was left wrestling with his thoughts in a garden just outside Jerusalem, whose heart was sorrowful, we read, even to the point of death, whose enemies really did triumph over him with their cruel apparatus of thorns and crowns and purple robes and sticks and spears and hammer and nails and cross, and who at the last, this king, was bewildered between the difference between God's promises and his present everyday reality that afternoon, He didn't ask how long, he said why. Eloi, Eloi, lamath sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Incidentally, people today who are going through real suffering, that may be some of us here, but they can be really put off by glib, simplistic answers to suffering. Real suffering teaches us to be suspicious of very tight ABC, simple outlines of answers to suffering. I wonder if you've experienced that. But isn't it wonderful that in the Christian faith, our Lord and our Savior is somebody who doesn't treat suffering glibly and shallowly and simply. He asks the question, why? He treats suffering with the depth it deserves. More of that later. But when God's promises look like they fail, trust in God's unfailing love. That's my second heading from verses 5 to 6. Did you notice the sea change which comes in verse 5 with three very precious words? But I trust. Of the 18 first-person pronouns in the whole psalm, all of them are passive, things being done to David, up until verse 5. Up until this moment, he's been forgotten, he's been triumphed over, he's been wrestled with, he's had sorrow. But now in verse five, he becomes active. It's like he wakes up and he does something which turns the tables for him. He becomes the subject of some actions. And it turns his sighing to singing. It's the turning point of the psalm. And I think this is very simple and profound. I imagine his thoughts are still wrestling with him. He's not out of the woods. He's still in the midst of depression, as we might say. But in the midst of his thought scuffle, he lunges to take hold of something which has always been there. He lunges to take hold of or to trust God's unfailing love. I love that. It's God's unfailing love. It's something here which is defined by what it is not. It is God's anti-failure love. I love that he didn't write here his dependable love, although it was, but he writes unfailing. It suggests that King David was worried his love would fail, but he's reminding himself, no, it's anti-failure love, it's consistent love. It's love that is teflon-coated and wrapped, it cannot be touched it cannot fail. It's love which has no sell-by date, no half-life. It has no life expectancy. It's eternity guaranteed, no warranty needed. It's always there. It's unfailing love, and he trusts it. In the Bible, the concept of trust is that of committing one's weight to it. and It's like he jumps into the arms of God's love and trusts the love to hold him as a child jumps into the arms of his father. That's the image here. And he trusts it. There's this gap between God's promises and his present everyday reality, but he trusts God's love. He he feels distant from God, but he trusts God's unfailing love. Sorrow is carried within his heart. He trusts God's unfailing love. Enemies knocking on his door. His very son robbing him of the the throne but he trusts God's unfailing love. And then did you see what follows? He jumps into the arms of unfailing love and he finds himself in the midst of what can be only described as as a carnival of joy, I think, being pulled on behind. Trusting in God's anti-fail love brings behind it heartfelt rejoicing in God's salvation. And then behind that, there's a song even that he begins to sing in the midst of the sorrow. And the lyric of the song is very simple. It's this, the Lord has been good to me. The Lord has been good to me. In the depth of his distress, David, the poet, his pen is maybe not quite as eloquent as it has been. He's finding it hard to write. It's a short song. Depression often does that. But as he looks down on the page, he sees some words arcing across it from his own pen. And it says this, the Lord has been good to me. He thinks back to those promises God made him in 2 Samuel 7. He says, no, no, God is good. He thinks back to God's faithfulness over all the years. He says, no, 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 God is good. This is worth singing about. He trusts in God's unfailing love. It's what David did, it's what Jesus Christ did as well. Our Lord exhibited that very same trust in God the Father's love, but perfectly. Even his cry of distress on the cross is a cry of trust and of faith in God's love. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a quote from Scripture, from Psalm 22, verse 1. Even in the confusion of it all, even as the Son of God is executed the words he speaks are words god has chosen for him to speak words of trust and of faith even at the darkest moment literally darkness on the cross later on you'll know he says father into your hands i commit my spirit quoting again psalm 31 he trusts god's unfailing love all the way even when god the father's promises look like they're failing and Psalm 13, David is doing the same. Verse 1, he appeals to God. He's, he's saying how long. It's all a prayer. And sometimes our faith in God looks like confusion brought to God in prayer. Sometimes our faith in God looks like, I don't know what's going on here. But Lord, you do, and I just want to hold on to the fact that you do. I want to hold on to your unfailing love. That's what faith sometimes looks like. Now, up until now, we haven't applied any of this to us. That's what we're going to get to now. We've just been listening to two kings singing this great song. And I hope that we're catching the tune of it slightly, David and Jesus Christ. But now we're going to begin to follow their lead and learn the tune. And it's my third and final heading, singing in the midst of sorrow. I'm going to make three observations. First one is this. This is a song to sing in response to God's promises to us, not in response to our thwarted desires. There's an illness which can creep all too easily into the church, and it's called MTD. And it's seeped into the Church of England, and we are in danger of it as well. Every church is. MTD. M, moralistic. T, therapeutic. D-deism. Moralistic. It's all about being a good person, being better people, upstanding citizens, and Jesus Christ, his grace and his forgiveness, are lost. Moralistic. Therapeutic. Church becomes all about being, feeling better about myself. It becomes a sort of spiritual therapy. Now, of course, we feel better when we come to church, but not because it's therapy because we're orientated towards God. D, deism, because God's kept at a comfortable distance. Now, I want to focus on the T, therapy, therapeutic. I think it's very easy for us to use a psalm like this wrongly as therapy, to make me feel better. And this is how it works. The ingredients are, you just take one thwarted desire that we may have, Uh, I'd like to get married, I'd like to be healthy where I've got ill health, I'd like to have children where I don't have children. Some thwarted desire which God has not actually promised us. And then we apply it to this psalm, and we sing the psalm with that in mind, and we say, how long, O Lord? And it sounds spiritual, it sounds even godly, but it's an incorrect use of the psalm. This psalm is sung in response to God's promises, which look like they've failed. So the appropriate use of this psalm would be something like this. If we're struggling with depression, taking hold of God's promise of joy in the midst of sadness and depression and using this as a song to say, how long, O Lord, please come good on your promise. Or, Or taking God's promise of evangelistic fruit, people becoming Christians through our words and our witness. And someone who's really not seeing any fruit at all in their office, taking this psalm and saying, Lord, how long... Please come good on your promise that I would be fruitful in your kingdom. Those would be good ways to use the psalm. Or just feeling like I'm being bugged by a besetting sin and and looking at God's promise that Jesus will return quickly and come soon. It would be a great psalm to use to pray, How long, O Lord, let your kingdom come? Those would be good ways to use the psalm. Second observation. Feeling despair like David does here, and like Jesus does, is okay. It's okay. I've been thinking this week, wouldn't it be hard if all we had in this book, the Bible, if all we had were God's promises to us? They're very great, they're very wonderful, but if all we had were God's promises to us, we might struggle with being disillusioned, with saying, well, why is my present-day reality so hard when these promises are so great? But wonderfully, God in his goodness has given us psalms like this one, which teach us, model to us, how to deal with God's great promises and our often humdrum everyday present-day experience. And he gives us those psalms to tell us that it's okay to feel confused. It's okay to feel this kind of distress in our lives. It's so okay that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, felt it and cried out, why on the cross it's a great encouragement let me ask you have you ever cried out in your heart in your prayer life how long or why often we we may be embarrassed about that it seems like we're not very sorted when we express those prayers but they're biblical they're good faithful feelings to feel and we know that to become like Jesus we need to carry our cross and follow him What does that look like? Of course, it means bearing lots of cost in our lives, but it also sometimes looks like confusion. Because on the cross, Jesus cried out, why? And in our Christian lives, there will be times when we need to cry out the same thing, and that is okay. We don't have to be utterly sorted all the time. Third and final little observation is this. This kind of despair, if we feel it, is never wasted by God. It's never wasted by God. When the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, sung this psalm with his life, it was not a song that was wasted, not an experience that was wasted for him. As his enemies triumphed over him, we will know that God the Father was working things such that he was going to achieve victory through that very defeat. And as the cries as those criminals and Jesus were crucified bled from crucify him to save yourself, and as the limp bodies were taken down off the crosses, and as the, the crowd gaggle of people moved away, and as the apostles quivered in terror behind locked doors, no one realized that it was through this very distress that Jesus felt, through through the appearance of God's promises failing that triumph was going to be won. No one knew that. No one knew that the answer to the question how long was three days and three nights. As the woman ran to the tomb and found it empty, and as Mary talked with the gardener and discovered that he was her lord and her master, no one knew that it was through this kind of despair that God would be working victory. And so I take it that if we feel a similar despair in our lives, sitting in the pews today, it will not be wasted. God the Father specializes in using such dark tools, even as the cross, to work his purposes out in the world. I hope that's an encouragement to us. It is to me. I'm going to pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we lift up to you our varied experiences of despair and depression. For some of us, just short term, some of us for years. We lift up to you our confusion as we read your great promises to us and our present day experience, which sometimes makes it look like those promises have failed. And we pray that we would hold on to your unfailing love in these times. We pray that we'd learn to sing songs like this psalm in the midst of our sorrow. So turn your face back to us, we pray. But in the meantime, help us to hold on to your unfailing love for your namesake. Amen.